You'll take your copy of God's Word as you do that and turn to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 13. We'll begin reading in verse 13. I invite you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. We will read through verse 43. Verse 13 through verse 43. This is our first sermon of Paul that we have recorded for us um, here. Acts chapter 13. Beginning verse 13. I'll read on the New King James Version. God's Word declares... Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they had departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. And went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel and the prophet. And after they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the king, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And we had removed him. He raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you, the word of this salvation has been sent for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written according to him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings. That promise which was made to the fathers, God fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, 
that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. I'm going to keep this one close by because I think this is not going to work very well. Well, last Sunday, if you missed it, um, and you did miss a lot, I have a note here somewhere in my Bible that I have to go through. I forgot during to give to Pastor Leachman. Then if you didn't miss last Sunday and you're here today, you still have perfect attendance. So then you know, I promised you I'd give you the numbers. Here they are. We have three from last year, 2014, with perfect attendance. We have four honorable mentions. One person lost, missed once. Three people missed three Sundays. Here we go. We'll start at the bottom. We have three that only, they're honorable mentions. They missed three weeks. Diane Roberts, Julie Maycumber, and Brenda Westlink. Miss three. You're close. So close. If, if Julie hadn't gotten married, she probably would have been here. Joyce Leslie missed one. Uh, Valerie Westlink had perfect attendance. I had perfect attendance. And Danny Fry had perfect attendance. So, good job. Stay faithful. If you're two for two this year, Doing well, if you want to be honorable mention, you just missed last week. You just got to make the commitment to be here. So it's, we want to recognize that. Does that mean I didn't get a vacation last year? That's what that means, doesn't it? Actually, I get a vacation six days out of every week, right? Because <laughs> I only work 52 days a year, so. It takes me about five years to earn enough to have a vacation. Well, we're going to talk about a couple of men that never, I don't think vacation ever came across their thinking. In Acts chapter 13, we have seen the beginning of what we describe as the missionary journeys of Paul. And of course, um, he would be offended at that because he, as far as we can tell, only one time he ever traveled alone. And even then, he wasn't fully alone heading to Athens. He had the Spirit with him. And for him, they are simply the missionary journeys that um, were his duty. And we see the spirit of them and the passion that's in there. We're going to be looking more at that uh, down the road a piece. Uh, we're pushing off until we get to the last passage with regard to John Mark. Uh, his expectation that this is uh, a life's calling. And uh, when he came across one that would not pull away through the whole thing, he was pretty disgusted. 
Because his expectation was that this is the work of God and we must endeavor in it till we are called home, whether by death or by translation, that we are um, faithful in that service to God. That there is no event in life, no disappointments, no hardships uh, that excuse us from the service of God. And we're going to find that out in the chapters to come in Paul and Barnabas' and Silas' life that there is a commitment that nothing can dissuade us from this ministry. And we have an opportunity as we saw their opening ministry last week that they really were prepared to confront enemies who knew the truth, even used the name Bar-Jesus, Son of Jesus, and yet were empty of truth, who claimed to have power, but it was of Satan and had to be confronted. And we're not talking about a distant land. We are talking about Barnabas' home island, where they were very familiar, very comfortable. We are talking about dealing with other Jews. And we are persistent in that this week, as we see that the missionary journeys really work cross-cultural until we get into uh, Asia Minor, um, into Greece, into Rome. Um, but they had a cross-cultural feel to them, uh, mostly because of our unfamiliarity with them, uh, with those cultures, and also because um, when you bring the gospel anywhere, you are cross-cultural. Because you are introducing a completely new culture, no matter whether it's within the one that you grew up in and are very familiar with, you are introducing Christ. And that makes every Christian out there in the workplace, out there in the schools, out there in the neighborhoods, cross-cultural. You're going to those who have an entirely different mindset, an entirely different philosophy, an entirely different... different set of rules that they will live by and think by. Uh, And so we are challenging those. We are seeking to uh, destroy them and to reintroduce a new culture, a culture that is not American, it's not really associated with any uh, human nation, but one that is devised by God. This is what we seek to introduce. And so in... Peter, or I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas go into Cyprus, Barnabas' hometown. They go into the synagogues in which they are very familiar. We talked about the fact that they would be wearing all the, all the apparel that, that, that declared who they were, a rabbi and a Levite, um, that they were well recognized and given permission to speak as we're going to see today. Um, they were still cross-cultural agents because they were introducing uh, a definitive break from here's who you were, here's how you lived, and here's who Christ calls you to be. And this we're going to see in his sermon this morning as we study it. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word, for your spirit. And we pray that you might help us as we engage your word this morning. To not only see the principles there and the information that it communicates, 
but that we might also recognize its authority. That it demands something of us. And that you have the right to demand that. That we might submit to that authority. The authority of your word, of your spirit, your son Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are reminded from our Bible reading that this message comes with a warning. To beware. Lest we receive it with unbelief. And so Lord, guard our hearts and, and help us. That we might not just receive information today, but that we might receive it with belief. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul and Barnabas arrive. They have left the island of Cyprus. Um, Paul, as far as we know, not really going to return. Barnabas is going to return with John Mark later. Um, they're then going to cross north and they're going to head into uh, the lower regions. We might call the whole region Asia Minor, but they did not. They had The Romans had it set up in regions and as well as cities. Uh, we are getting uh, into uh, what I would call Galatia um, as the larger region, although they would recognize that as a smaller one. And he, he identifies those regions as well, Luke does, uh, as well as uh, those cities. And so they sail. They arrive in Perga, in the region of Pamphylia. Um, we are not told a lot happening there. We don't know what uh, transpired, uh, but we do know that in the midst of this, uh, John Mark leaves. And whether that is a, a contributing factor to the fact that we really don't have a description of, the, of what transpired there, of, of, the, in, of the, their message, or it, we don't really know. We can bring a lot of of conjecture upon it, and I prefer just not to do that. We just know that there, uh, that the time there was short. Um, it was filled with uh, conflict uh, within their team, and uh, somehow that meant that John Mark headed home. Some would contend that he just got homesick, but uh, again, we're just guessing because all we know is that uh, he was done. He wasn't going to continue and press forward with them. Uh, for whatever reasons. And so they leave that area. They come to Antioch. This is a different Antioch than the one that they left. Um, this is Antioch in Pisidia. And so we have uh, this place not very far um, from Perga. They travel inland a little bit. Uh, and so they come to this region, to this community, and they do what is their standard operating procedure. They are going to arrive at a synagogue, um, they go in and they sit down as simply someone who is there to worship on a Saturday morning and uh, to participate in the events of the synagogue that day. Uh, they are immediately identified in the course of the synagogue meeting. The typical arrangement would be that one would uh, read from the Law and the Prophets. If you remember when Jesus entered in the synagogue, they invited him to come and he would select his own passage to read from. And then his declaration today, this is fulfilled in your midst. Uh, what a powerful reading of God's Word. You realize, oh, there it is, just right now? <laughs> you hear now? Yep. And so these two are sitting, they sit and they listen to the reading. The reading is apparently um, from some account of which Paul is going to take off from and start preaching. Um, and so they're identified. And having the reading accomplished, uh, the rulers of the synagogue... Uh, recognize that here is an accomplished rabbi, 
Here's a Levite that is visiting us. And the next obvious thing is to invite them to say, do you have something to share? Uh, particularly the fact that they are coming um, from Jerusalem. Uh, remember that Paul was, was trained in Jerusalem. He is not a rabbi of, of uh, training of low esteem. He was in Jerusalem of one of the chief rabbis uh, there at the feet of Gamaliel is where he was studied. And so uh, this would have been found out pretty quickly in their arrival. And so the invitation is given. If you have any word of exhortation for the people, please share it. Say on. And he's given a platform. If you have anything to say, and it's powerful what, what he's saying, if you have any word, you've given, you've given a blank check here. You've given an opportunity uh, and we even invite you to exhort us. And that word exhortation, one we don't hear very much used in, in our day, and we've almost kind of lost track of it um, in terms of its uh, force. Um, many people use a synonym called encouragement, uh, and certainly that's an aspect of this. It's not to discourage us. But exhortation is a strong message to bring us into a better relationship with our God. Uh, it is to encourage us, certainly, but not encouragement like we think of it. We think of encouragement as someone coming on, patting us on the back, saying, oh, you poor thing, you know, keep it up and, and hang on, things like that. It's not that kind of encouragement. When we get to the word exhortation, we are, we are boldly uh, drawing you to uh, kind of suck it up and get at it um, would be our vernacular. Okay? Um, some of my kids might say, just get over yourself and get on with it. Um, whatever. I don't know where they heard that before. Probably not from me. Um, they would use those terminology and, and the idea is not to, to run you down. The idea is, is that now let's press on. Let's get over that, and there's much to accomplish, and, and that kind of encouragement that is to steal one against the battle that we are engaged in. And so um, we find this rising uh, of Paul to this challenge of encouraging the people of what they would need to be doing for God and not, uh, not devoiding it of challenge or of rebuke or of warning. Um, that all is part of good exhortation. And so Paul stands up, and we find him now. We're not going to have a lot of his messages given to us. We just simply know that this is going to be the model of what he is going to be speaking in this context. And uh, we're going to have another model of what he would speak in an in a area on Mars Hill. We have a full sermon there described of what he speaks to a bunch of uh, pagans who are worshiping every little god imaginable. Uh, we're also going to have a full testimony of what he does on a personal level with the kings. So we're going to have examples of his testifying of Christ. And these serve us well um, because they tell us that there are, there's different uh, approaches in different environments that demands something of us. And so um, speaking to a group of people who have at least some positive 
perspective on God's word is different than speaking to a group of pagans that have never heard of Jesus. And that's distinct from what, how we're going to communicate Christ on an individual level, particularly with those in authority over us. And so we're going to give these examples. So we have this one. Now, what does Paul do when he goes in among people who call themselves followers of God? We are the Jewish nation. We are the people of God. Uh, we have the word of God. We have uh, the history. We have the, the claim to God, if you will. How do you reach those kind of people? Um, and that's pretty rugged um, to walk in. If you could imagine um, me walking into another church of some other persuasion. Oh, a Catholic church, um, Presbyterian church. Even Let's get even get into the cults. If I walked into this Mormon church over here, oh, you know, we have an ordained minister here. We have someone who's who is trained in God's Word and, and just invites you up to speak. I'm pretty sure that would never happen in any of those settings, but I have had it happen um, in other churches that um, I didn't really agree with what was going on in the church. Um, the last time it happened to me was in Haiti. And um, <clears throat> I was invited to speak. Actually, I wasn't invited to speak. Uh, Pastor Podesta was invited to speak at a church that was not a Baptist church or more than a fellowship. It was a pastor friend that, that had engaged him and, and had invited him to speak for week after week after week, month after month after month. He had been inviting Pastor Podesta, please come speak at my church. And Pastor Podesta kept putting it off and putting it off. And somehow when I arrived, it was a good week to go. And instead of him speaking, he put on me to speak. Um, with an interpreter. And I very quickly figured out why he didn't want to speak at this church. And so, sitting there with a message that I was prepared to present and having gone through the early stages of the service um, and hearing and understanding what's going on here, um, I pretty much just put my message away and said, I have a totally new message to speak. Because now I recognize that I'm not really dealing with people around the same page as I am. But we have to begin in the common ground. And this Paul does. He recognizes the need to begin with common ground. Here's some common ground. These people will give you God's word. When you have that common ground with people, oh, that you would use it. Don't sit there and get into the philosophy of you and them. Use God's word. If they will give you God's word, oh, please use it. The reason you are reticent to use, the reason you, you might hesitate to use it is because you're not familiar enough with it. Or you might be afraid they might be more familiar of it than you. And this problem, brethren, is correctable. <laughs> you know how? Study it. Study God's Word. Read it. We have a Bible reading schedule. At least read through the thing. Um, study it. Learn it. Discern it. Understand it. And if, and if you struggle at that, then you should be at every Bible study we offer, every, every opportunity you have to get into God's Word with God's people. You should take full advantage of. 
When you encounter people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe the Bible, well, now you just were given a great gift to use in your testimony to them. When you see in their life that they are, while they claim the name, while they claim this heritage, while they claim this book, and you see nothing in their life that gives you evidence that this is truly someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, use the book. So Paul is in a place where God's word has been read, where people are seeking. They want to know. And if someone is making that claim and they, and they have a Bible and they, they want to know what is the truth, oh, please use the Bible as your foundation, as the core of your entire message. And this is what we find Paul doing. Is he going to use the Bible on Mars Hill? No. Why? Because it, none of those guys have ever read it. None of them ever owned one. How much contact they had with Jewish people at all is questionable. These were the Greek philosophers. That shouldn't intimidate us either, by the way, that word philosophy. Don't let that you know, intimidate you at all. It just means that they, it's thinking about life. And so we find that here, Paul is among people who are going to give him God's word. We have God's word. They're going to let us have that. They acknowledge its truth. Um, even though there are some that don't give it the authority that we give it, um, there are those that will recognize it as one of three truths, one of three uh, foundations. For the, and uh, for the Catholic Church, it's the three, they describe the three-legged stool of the church tradition of papal declaration and of the Bible. And uh, the Bible isn't necessarily the, the most important of those three. But they'll give you the Bible. Well, use the Bible. This body of people um, who identify themselves with God, the same God we identify with, and that's why I probably wouldn't go into a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness church because that's a different God altogether. Totally redefine Jesus Christ. Totally redefine who the Creator God is. No different than Islam or some of these other religions. But these have the same God. The God of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, the God of Moses, the God of David. And so he begins by declaring to them this word. Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. These people thought they had a relationship with God. And to some degree they did. They had knowledge of him. They had a desire to follow him, but it was incomplete. And this is our approach. We must recognize that these individuals who uh, are incomplete, maybe all they know about God's word is, is what they've seen on television. <laughs> Ooh, that'd be terrible. What they've heard used on very limited occasions. They always seem to know certain verses that excuse their sin, they think. Or that, that excuse them from being judged for their sin. But fundamentally, Paul recognized he's talking to a people who are friendly toward God. They are the Theophiluses of his world. Just as Luke is writing this letter to the friendly toward God man in his life. 
that's what this letter is. Written to a guy that's just friendly towards God. He's going to give you a lot of... So use it. Paul says, please listen. And he begins with information they're very, very familiar with. But it is not just because of their familiarity, it's because of what it points to. He starts off with the exodus, with the events around it, that here we were strangers in a foreign land, and yet we were in a blessed state by God. But we recognize that even though in that blessed state, we were still strangers in a foreign land. We weren't really where we were supposed to be. Can you see where he's going to take this in their mind? The, the stage that he has set in their thinking, that you're still the blessed of God, and you're, but you're in a foreign land. You're in a strange place. You're not where you really belong yet. Um, you, you're friends of God. You're, 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 you're fear God, but you're not in this intimate relationship with God that he wants. You're kind of like Israel was back then. You are blessed of God because you have his word. You get to meet every week around it and hear it read, um, but you are still strangers in a foreign land. You haven't come into the kingdom of God. And we can see him already introducing the theme so he can set that pattern that, that, listen, I want you to associate where you are right now, not just because you're here and not in Jerusalem, but spiritually, that you are strangers to God, really, because you have not accepted his deliverance through Jesus Christ. And so he tries to connect them to Israel in, in Egypt. You're strangers in a strange land. We're, we're the children of those people. God lift, uplifted arm, with God's uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. That God did something powerful to deliver them. He didn't just create in them a spirit of rebellion to cause a, a, a civil war in Egypt and somehow a bunch of them escaped to Canaan. It's not how it happened. God comes in and with powerful, divine force makes this happen. He lifts up his arm and takes action that he might deliver his people from their slavery. And again, we, because we know the end of this story, recognize the themes that he's introducing. So he's introducing, here's who you are. You are just like our forefathers. You were in slavery, and you're in slavery to the law, to sin, because the law can't deliver you from sin. It can only point to your sin. You're in that same kind of slavery. Yes, you're blessed of God in many respects, but you're still in slavery. And it was going to require a powerful working of God to deliver you. He's going to have to lift up his arm to accomplish this. This isn't something you can do for yourself. This isn't something that the ploys of man can, can accomplish. This is something that we have to totally beg God to do something for us. And this we need to communicate. The helpless state of slavery that we are in. Because of sin. And so he brings them out of it. In verse 18, he presses the, the, the account very quickly. 
He covers 40 years of rebellion in the wilderness. And God put up with them. We've been in a transition period when not all of Israel, not all the synagogues had heard about Jesus. They hadn't heard the account. I'm sure there were rumors and there were things going on, pilgrims going back, the church was scattered, there was things talked about, but they hadn't really heard all of it yet. And Paul uh, compares them to that 40 years in the wilderness. God's put up with that. But now you're going to hear the whole story. And from this point on, you're either going to be under God's judgment or under his personal blessing. God will tolerate this. And, 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 and he's, the ignorance, uh, as long as, because you still fear God, you still have his word, you're still seeking him, um, but you've been ignorant. And in that ignorance, um, God has a level of toleration. Um, but as soon as the word comes, and then there's going to come a warning at the end of this message. So he's laying this association down in their thinking. Verse 19, he then comes in and God, I love how he describes it, God destroyed the seven nations of the land of Canaan. He doesn't attribute that success to Joshua. He doesn't attribute it to uh, Caleb. He attributes it to God. God destroyed the enemies of the land. And we know who he is getting ready to introduce, the one who would destroy our enemies of sin and death. It's going to take God's power. Even when we make a choice to cross that Jordan River on dry ground, um, and I did say the Jordan River, not the Red Sea, um, we're 40 years later, remember? Going to the king, we still recognize that it's God who must destroy the enemy. I am not capable of it. And it's God who must give me this inheritance. And what Paul is rehearsing for them is the utter dependence that, that from slavery into this inheritance, it is the working of God to deliver. It is the working of God to, to give victory. It is the working of God to, to give inheritance. It is all dependent upon God. That, he, that the greatest... Uh, event of redemption that took over 40 years, about 50, well, if you count the whole conquest period, um, you're talking um, 70 years. That the greatest historical act of redemption to that time, till Christ, all had to be done by the powerful working of God. God did it. God did it. God did it. And this we must rehearse again and again is our complete dependence upon God for delivery from slavery, for uh, victory over the enemy, for an inheritance allotted. He then goes into the history further, very quickly moving through the period of the judges, recognizing 450 years, recognizing the bringing of the Samuel the prophet, the kingship period uh, in our study through uh, on Sunday nights through uh, First Samuel, we saw this. Um, again, the reiteration of the great time spans that went by. That God is waiting for the right time. That when he raises up for himself, David. And David, of course, has to be brought forward in the Jewish mind because we know that it's the root of David. It's 
this one who is associated with David. Whoever is going to be the Messiah has to come out of Judah and has to come out of David, out of the root of Jesse. So out of David has to come this one. And so he's laying the groundwork for who the person that God would use to deliver us from slavery, to bring us to victory into the land, and to give us a sure inheritance. Who is this person that's going to accomplish this? And he begins laying the groundwork of the, of the requirements of it, going back to the judges, to the prophets, to the kings. That God had been laying out some foundation stones for this one to come, who would be Israel's savior who would do God's will and not his own. The human side of the Messiah must be established. And so verse 23, having quickly moved through the entire Old Testament, <laughs> he is now ready to introduce Jesus Christ. He says, From this man's seed, According to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior. And we already know his name. His name is Jesus. And I don't want you to miss him. And so he has taken, and in just a handful of statements, he has encapsulated that which they are extremely familiar with. And I would challenge you to start there with what they are very familiar with. And for us, the familiarity is, is probably around the birth narrative about the, the Passion Week and the, and the events there and, and perhaps the resurrection. Um, but for many who call themselves Christians uh, who have a religious backdrop and tradition in life, which are becoming fewer and fewer, by the way, in our country and in this culture, um, we have uh, to begin there. Well, you know about this person Jesus was born. You know about this facts of his life, but do you understand its purposes? Do you understand what, how you must uh, engage that, how you must um, accept this, and to what degree? So he's still now wanting to talk about this Jesus, and the message of John the Baptist has, has penetrated the Jewish world all the way to Rome. Uh, it has gotten out who John the Baptist was. In fact, if you'll recall down the road here in Acts, we're going to be introduced to another preacher who's out there preaching the message of John the Baptist. He's a disciple of John the Baptist who left Judah uh, with that message. He's going out into the same Roman world that Paul and Barnabas were out into, but he was not in Israel when Jesus came on the scene. So he's not preaching Jesus at all. He's just preaching John the Baptist's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. So this one, John the Baptist, they'd all heard about. That message had penetrated almost the entire Roman Empire uh, because of the followers of John the Baptist, who, who his disciples, some of which scattered out before um, the events of Christ's life occurred. And so John takes them naturally to, you heard about John. Well, John preached about his coming. You've heard others, you've heard part of the message. You heard that he, that we are on the cusp of this generation that see is coming. You've heard that. John preached about this guy. Well, he did come. 
You haven't heard that part of the message yet, but I'm here to help you discover that. Verse 24, it says, John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, which included them, that they had heard that. Many people um, talk about the a kind of revival going on in Judaism um, in the years prior to, to Paul's missionary journey. That in the, in the uh, oh, 12 to 15 years uh, after Christ, and really after John the Baptist, that there was kind of a revival of interest because of this message of John piqued their interest. That many Jews started getting closer into the synagogue because they heard the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And it piqued their interest. And so they started coming into the synagogue with more significance. And and some of the early uh, Jewish writers talked about this this, uh, filling up of the synagogues and the establishment of new synagogues. And the interest also among the Gentile world, um, very similar to the Christmas story with the Magi, um, this interest in the Gentile world and this Jewish Messiah is supposed to be coming all based upon the preaching of John the Baptist. Very powerful. We sometimes don't grasp how significant his ministry was as, as uh, the Elijah to come. But it penetrated the whole Jewish community uh, with, throughout the Roman Empire. And so they were familiar with this guy and the preaching. That there was one coming. Someone's coming. And Fascinatingly, we have a very similar message, don't we? Um, I love how evangelistic prophecy studies can be when done well. When they're done including the purpose of prophecies, which is to recognize that you better take care of your sin because this is what God's getting ready to do. That's exactly what John the Baptist says. God's getting ready to come Repent of your sin and be baptized and be ready for his coming. And we have a pretty similar message, really, because we're expecting Christ back again pretty soon. And this needs to be our message. You need to repent of your sin, identify yourself with the people of God, and you need to come to Christ and and be a follower of his so when he comes that you are ready. John the Baptist spoke of him, described who he would be, that he would, he would be one that was worthy, one that would be above all others. They'd heard that message. They'd heard this kind of stuff. And, but in verse 26, he begins now to delineate, it's just not enough to be all this isn't quite sufficient. And here's where we stop preaching. You know why we stop at this point? Because we think that the people we're talking to have enough. Let's be honest. We'll call them Christian. We'll say they're a good person. We'll say, well, they pray. They go to church. They, and we'll stop preaching to them. Paul doesn't stop here. He's just getting started. And just when we get to that point where we really need to confront them and say, now, this is what it means to receive the salvation of God, 
we stop because they say, oh yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, I, I, I've gone to church since I was a little guy. Oh yeah, I believe Jesus is God. Um, I, I, and we stop because, well, you're great to meet your brother. Well, these men had heard the preaching, the, the content at least, of John the Baptist. If not, many of them during their pilgrimage to Jerusalem um, would have actually heard him. Um, these people have know the word. They know the prophets. They know the law. Um, they have the history. Uh, he calls them a men who fear God. He calls them uh, uh, the faithful of Israel. Children of the people of God. And we would tend to get to this point and they say, oh yeah, 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 we've heard all that. And, and yeah, I believe all that. And we just stop. Because we think that since they have this mental assent to this information, that equals salvation. That that equals discipleship. And it does not. We must get to be preaching uh, <laughs> verse 26. And following, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham. So that's the Jews that are there. There's also some other people there. They're called proselytes. And those among you who fear God, that's who are not Jews, born that way, but you have converted to Judaism, and you're here, you're hearing, listening, talking to you too. To you, the word of this salvation has been sent. That is, that all the information I've given you so far is the beginning. Now I have been sent to give you something about your salvation that you need to see. And he begins by not declaring to them that they need to pray a sinner's prayer. <laughs> he begins by declaring to them, um, there's a, other people who know everything you know. In fact, they were there. They heard John the Baptist they heard Jesus. They saw his miracles. They participated in all of it. And they rejected him. And by their testimony, he was crucified. It was by their wicked hands. They did not know him, he says in verse 27. Because they did not know him, and they didn't even know the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. So they read every Sabbath, but they don't know. Jesus Christ said, My sheep hear my voice, and they know me. That's the next phrase. And they follow me. And what I'm afraid of is that many of our relationships with people in the world, in our workplaces, who will agree with some information about Jesus Christ and agree with some information about the Bible and have some religiousness to them, that, that we will conclude that they have all three of these in their life, that they have heard his voice, that they know him, and that they follow him. But the fact is, is that in many instances, that's just not the case. That there's many, many, many people have heard his voice and not known him and not followed him. And we need to recognize that. They are very religious people. 
And this Jesus encountered. And Paul wants to, before he tells them how to get saved, he wants to warn them. Now listen. The leadership, my teachers, the people I looked up to, where I was being trained as a rabbi in Jerusalem, those guys, our rulers, our priests, they didn't know Jesus. They didn't recognize him. They did not know the voices of the prophets. Even though they were read every Sabbath, they heard the voice, but they didn't know him. Instead, they condemned him. They didn't find any cause for death, but yet they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. And again, this was a fulfillment of prophetic word, he says in verse 29. This they did to fulfill the word of God. Of Isaiah. Another passage is going all the way back really to prophetic word in, in, given to Eve in the garden. And so it begins with a very strong warning. Your religious rulers didn't know him. Didn't recognize him didn't listen, didn't submit to him, didn't follow him. They opposed him. Were they religious? Absolutely. Had they heard all the sermons? Sure. Had they seen the miracles? Oh, yes. They interviewed the people that had been healed. Demons had been cast out of they had access to all that information. They were there every Sabbath reading the Bible. They meticulously obeyed it. Yeah? But they didn't know him. They didn't know him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't want to submit to him as the Messiah. And so they had him slain. This is the work of men. And now, just as we have the, but God raised his arm, up, uplifted his arm in Egypt, but God raised up Jesus from the dead. This is what our religious leaders did to him. And there are some prophecies involved in that. This, but this is what God did. And I want to remind you that when Moses went back to Egypt to tell them that he was there to let to, to bring them to deliverance, that he encountered some opposition from the people. You have made our life harder, not easier. Now we've got to do this in addition to this. And, and there's some grumbling before they got out. There was some opposition there. But God did that work. But God raised him from the dead. There were witnesses, and here Paul isn't necessarily one of those who witnessed Christ in his, the many days. His witness would come much later of Christ in his resurrected form. In verse 31, he was seen. There was, there was testimony, there's evidence to, to demonstrate this, we're not talking off the top of our heads, for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee, referring to all fishermen and tax collectors and all those people that followed him. Um, They're witnesses to the people. And now we declare to you glad tidings. 
verse 32. Great little verse. And it's unfortunately not one of those that we quote enough and that we have memorized. But this is a wonderful verse about what we get to do. We bring you glad tidings. And we declare to you glad tidings. That promise which was made to the fathers, God fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. We declare to you the glad tidings. There's a promise. That promise was not completely fulfilled in Moses. It wasn't completed in the, in the events around the redemption of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, the, the coming into the land and the victory there and the, and the dividing of the land. Um, that, that isn't all that God has for us. There's something more substantial. There's a completing of the singular promise of God. The promise. Wrapped up in this Messiah that all Israel was kept looking for. One like unto Moses. Remember Moses says, God's going to raise up someone like me. Only greater than me. Him you must listen. To him you must listen. Remember Peter's message? You got to listen to that guy? Well, Jesus is the guy. It's now time to transition your allegiance from Moses and the law to Jesus' grace. These are glad tidings. A fulfillment of the promise of God is in Jesus Christ. And now again, he goes back into the Word. Not what they had read that day, but rather of his own. He starts quoting out of the Psalms uh, all that is spoken of Christ. Things they were familiar with and yet hadn't connected that they reference the working of Christ in his resurrected state and in the fact that he's not going to see corruption that there has to be one who is going to conquer death for us that that's the ultimate slavery that we have is to sin and death and the slavery in Egypt that was significant and we they've celebrated that uh, every Passover but here we are, and we have a more significant deliverance to that because that was just a shadow of the real deliverance that God has for all men, and that is from slavery of sin and death. And so one had to conquer death. Just as God conquered Egypt, conquered Pharaoh, so Jesus Christ conquered our greatest enemy. With a mighty arm, God raised him up. And again, servant of God, for serving, goes back and references David again. They all died. They're all buried. We know where their tombs are. They weren't our deliverers. The David wasn't the king spoken of that would be our deliverer. It was one out of the seed of David. Moses wasn't our deliverer. He died. He, was, he didn't even make it into the promised land. But we have one who has conquered death, who is alive. And that has enormous consequences. When you're dealing with a living God, a living Savior, who has conquered sin and death, now you're ready to confront what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Not just to say, oh yeah, I celebrate Easter, Jesus rose from the dead. So what? Oh boy. That's big. 
huge. And mostly we just discount it. Yeah, that's great. Not recognizing this means he's God. This means he's alive right now. This means he has authority over sin and death, something I can't stop from happening. And this gives him more authority than any king, than any law, than any prophet. This is one you must deal with by either becoming his follower or rejecting him and falling into judgment. You must deal with this one. This man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. 39. By him, everyone, and Paul has already started to introduce the fact, and you can almost imagine a few Gentiles that are outside the synagogue listening at the window because they're not allowed in unless their proselytes have been circumcised and brought in. Um, so they're out there, and he uses the word very purposefully. By him, everyone who believes is justified from all things. And then he adds this very important phrase for this audience. And it's something you need to communicate in witnessing to religious people who are not children of God. From which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You can't come to God through religious activity or the keeping of self-righteous laws. Cannot accomplish it. All that we've done as Israel, that really isn't sufficient. Even the sacrifices, they weren't enough. They simply were acts of faith that God would provide a sacrifice that would be enough. But the problem is that you stopped trusting in the one to come who would give the sacrifice. You started trusting in the sacrifice itself instead of what it was picturing. You started trusting in keeping the law instead of recognizing that the law couldn't be kept. We were all failing at that. That there had to be someone to come who was perfect righteousness to take our place, to become righteousness, to give us that. And it is so important that we communicate effectively that just knowing this information, just recognize, I believe in the Bible. Um, Well, what does it say that you believe in? What does it mean? Where's the evidence? Where's the proof? Do you really believe Jesus is alive? That he is God of gods and King of kings and Lord of lords? And if he's the master of masters, then why isn't he your master? You can have all that information still be on a direct course to hell. And this Paul wants to communicate that you cannot trust in the law of Moses. You cannot trust in your religious activity. You cannot trust in your own righteousness. You cannot trust in your own sacrifices. You can only trust in this one Jesus Christ. He can deliver you from that which nothing else can deliver you from. And if you want to mix this up and you want to start mixing belief in something else with your belief in God... um, what does God say he's going to do with you? Spit you out of his mouth. He has nothing to do with you. This is the powerful message of the gospel. That he alone can deliver. The law couldn't do it. And then he ends with this warning that I've been referencing all the way through. Look out. Beware. 
Don't you be among those who don't believe. Because not only did the Bible talk about all the powerful things Jesus would do, and God raising him from the dead, and the deliverance, and all that's there, but there's also some very powerful warnings in the prophets that talk about the fact that many will not believe. They'll keep relying on their religious activity instead of a full-blown trust in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on Calvary's cross and that alone, period, end of discussion. It is not Jesus and. And as soon as we have Jesus plus, you are no longer a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you are a follower of Jesus plus. And once you start mixing yourself into it, you're no different than Israel. And the reason they got taken out of the land is because they went on Saturday to the synagogue. They went on Saturday down to the temple, to the tabernacle. They went on Saturday down there. And by Sunday, they were out there worshiping on the high places, the Baals of the nations. Shame on any of you that are doing it because you are not a follower of Jesus Christ if that is in your life. If today you are trusting in Jesus, but tomorrow you're trusting maybe in Jesus, but also in your money, in your false God, in whatever, yourself. You are not a follower of Jesus Christ. You are bound for hell. The calling of God is that we be warned that real belief in Jesus Christ says He is all I need. Jesus Christ. I will believe in nothing but Him. And I'll invest all my faith there. And this was a brand spanking new message that this audience had never heard. And the results are evident in verse 42 and 43. They got excited. And again, we see a great conversion um, without one person praying. You ready? What does it say they did? Does it say they prayed? Does Paul tell them to pray? Does Paul tell them to come forward in a church service? Nope. Here's what happened. You ready? The Jews went out of the synagogue. The Gentiles begged that we get another message next week from you. Can you... We'll listen at the window. We don't care. Just we'll, we'll come back and speak again. Look in verse 43. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, here it is, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. We're going to follow you. You told us the words of life, and we want to follow it. We're going to pursue it with you. And their statement is, don't follow us. <laughs> continue. That is, be faithful in, persist in the grace of God. That you find yourself immersed and entirely dependent upon that grace that is greater than my sin. That I continue in that. And that's all they persuaded them to do. Continue in the grace of God. Trust in Jesus. Jesus alone. His grace alone. None of the law. None of your own things. Don't trust in those. It doesn't mean you stop doing good things and you stop investing in yourself in worship. Oh, no, certainly not. But you're not trusting in those things. Rather, you're trusting in this one Jesus who's alive, who is my master, who 
has authority in my life, and I will follow him and no one else. This is the message that our world needs to hear, that we need to preach, that you need to accept if you have not. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for its power, the mighty arm that you lifted up in raising Christ from the dead, that we might be delivered from the slavery of sin, that we could do nothing. And so you did everything. And for this we rejoice, even as the Jews, the proselytes, and the Gentiles did that day. We rejoice. And our prayer is that you might find us as your children putting our faith in you, and turning away from all that is not of your name. Lord, we pray that we might have this evidence of a personal relationship with you. That we have been persuaded to persist in following the grace that you have offered to us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.